Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. We will eventually get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so we'll be in both of those areas this morning. But we're going to start out as we're going verse by verse through the book of Judges. A few years ago, a famous pastor of a megachurch in the Chicago area had a tragic downfall. He was a best-selling author. He spoke at many conferences He was one of the big leaders in the conservative evangelical movement. He had a thriving radio ministry. And sadly, he had a history of verbal abuse, bullying, extravagant lifestyles, gambling trips he would make to Las Vegas. So the elders fired him from his church, and they wrote in this statement, that he displayed, quote, inappropriate language, anger, and domineering behavior. He would spend the church's money on safaris to Africa, luxury cars and motorcycles, multiple houses nationwide, and then over a three-year period, he spent $1.2 million of the church's money. Last year, he was arrested and charged with felony battery and assault after attacking a 59-year-old woman in a road rage incident. Put her in the hospital for weeks. He's facing seven years in prison. His lawyers gave the defense that he had PTSD because everybody was being mean to him on the Internet. They were trolling him. The sad thing is that I used to follow this guy. Back in 2006, I bought one of his books on personal revival about how God would downpour His Spirit and bring revival and spiritual awakening to Christians across the United States. Well, his former staff members, his former elders, his church describe him as a bully, narcissistic, unapproachable, greedy, and materialistic. And so when you look at the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy and Titus, we can see why the elders fired him. He did not live up to what the Bible says a pastor should be. And it's so tragic to me how a pastor can spiritually abuse a congregation and fall from grace so quickly. Speaking of falling from grace, last week we looked at Gideon. And the tragic thing about Gideon was he started so well and he ended so badly. He ended as this vindictive man on a personal vendetta, He had many wives and concubines, and he led the nation of Israel into gross idolatry. And he had a son from his concubine. The son's name is Abimelech, which means my father is the king. And so as we get into Judges chapter 9, we find the treachery, the result that came from that wicked son, Abimelech. Now, chapter 9 is lengthy. You looked at this this morning and you said, whoa, this has 57 verses. 
we're going to be here a long time. I'm not going to read all, the, all this whole chapter, okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to overview the highlights and give some significant areas. But here's the main idea of this lengthy chapter. Here's the main point of this passage. You get what you ask for when you accept bad leadership. If you're willing to accept bad leadership, you get what you ask for. And that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. So this chapter is divided into four main parts. And so we will look at those this morning. So part one, Abimelech makes himself king. Abimelech makes himself king. So we will read the first six verses of chapter 9. So let's read this together. Now remember, Abimelech was the illegitimate son, the son of the concubine of Jerubal, who was actually otherwise known as Gideon. So here we go. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, that's also Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men, one on one stone, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the elders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. How things would have been different if Gideon had not had relations with a concubine. So this son, Abimelech, marches into the town of Shechem, and basically persuades everybody to make him the king. And he uses money that's given to him from these false gods to hire these worthless thugs, these worthless fellows, this gang of worthless guys to follow him along in his entourage. And then he goes back and he kills all 70 of his brothers, except for one, Jotham, who was hiding. And you may not understand the full reality of how treacherous this is. Not only does he kill 70 of his own brothers, but verse 6 tells us that he was made king by the oak of Shechem. You may think, well, what's the big deal about the oak of Shechem? If you go back in Israel's history, that's a very important place. What happened at the oak tree in Shechem? Well, it's where God first showed up to Abraham. Genesis 12, 6-7. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him there. This is the oak tree where God said to Abraham, You're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to have many descendants. And Abraham worships the Lord at the oak of Shechem. You also find out that in Genesis 35, God appears to Jacob at the oak of Shechem. And God tells Jacob, your family needs to get rid of all the idols that they have. And so Jacob takes all the idols from his family and he buries them under the oak of Shechem, that oak tree. Then in Joshua 24, 
all the tribes of Israel gather at the Oak of Shechem. And Jacob reads the book of the law, and they set up a stone altar there to worship the Lord. So for the people to make Abimelech king at the Oak of Shechem is idolatrous. It's blasphemous at its highest. This was one of the most sacred places in Israel where God appeared to Abraham, God appeared to Jacob, God appeared to the Israelites and is associated with worshiping the one true God. So this illegitimate son of this concubine forces himself to be king through violence and he's exalted at one of the most sacred places in Israel. And Israel will soon find out you get what you ask for. All right, let's keep going. Part two. Jotham, the son that hid, the youngest son, Jotham preaches a parable. So we're going to read this parable, so let's keep going here. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you go on to read in verse 20, If not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Okay, so Jotham, the youngest son here, the name Jotham means the Lord is honest, preaches a parable, a riddle, a fable. And he is using the trees that Israel would be aware of in that time, the three most prized plants or trees in Israel. The olive tree first. The olive tree was the most prized tree in Israel because it was used for cooking, it was used for medicine, it was used for lamp fuel, and so basically it was used to anoint the prophets, priests, and kings, and so oil came from the olive tree. Olive tree, do you want to rule over us? No, I don't want to rule over you. Okay, what about the fig tree? The fig tree was known for its sweetness. You would bake cakes with figs. You know, like today we eat fig newtons. That's an inside joke between me and my wife. But... Um, the fig tree says, no, I don't want you to rule. I don't want to rule over you. Well, then it's like, okay, third, we'll go to the grapevine. The grapevine was the source of wine and good cheer. And then the grapevine says, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to rule over you. So they go to the fourth tree, a bramble, like a tumbleweed coming across I-76. I'll rule over you. And so here's the point. The, the greatest trees in Israel aren't chosen to rule. It's this bramble, this thorny, this tumbleweed that is dry and corrupt and, and crusty and, and has no life and, and has no protection. But that's what they want. 
And so what's the point of this little parable that Josh, Jotham preaches? He basically says, listen, if you want bad leadership, you get what you ask for. If you don't want qualified leadership, if you don't want the best of the best, if you're willing to take this bramble to rule over you, then you'll have to deal with the consequences. And then in verse 20, he has this prophecy. He says in there in verse 20, Fire's going to come out and destroy you, town of Shechem, and fire's going to come out and destroy Abimelech. And basically what he says is, is if this is the way you want to go, if you want to make Abimelech your king, it's going to end badly. It's going to end with fire, destruction. So I'm going to ask this now, and I'm going to return to it, because I want you to start thinking about it right now. I'm not going to answer it, but I want you to start thinking about it. Why do churches sometimes accept unqualified leaders as their pastors? I mean, it's not like God's unclear. In 1 Timothy, in Titus, the Bible sets forth very clearly the qualifications for pastors. So there's no ambiguity as to far as what the qualifications are. There's, there's no misunderstanding what the character of a pastor should be, what the aptitude of a pastor should be. So why do churches bypass the clear teachings of Scripture and compromise when selecting pastors? Back in 2004, <clears throat> when I was still a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, and I knew God was calling me to be a senior pastor, and I was kind of in the process of looking at different churches, and this is before I came to Emmanuel. Uh, there was a church in Colorado that sent me a questionnaire. So this is what they often do to pastors. They send you a questionnaire to answer all these questions. And, and usually a questionnaire has things like your character, your theology, what do you believe about the inerrancy of Scripture, what do you believe about the Trinity, what do you believe about the priorities of preaching, all those types of things. Well, here was the first question on the form that told me a lot about this church. Here's the first question they ask. What are you going to do to grow our church? I thought, that's an interesting question. That's the first question they asked. What are you going to do, pastor, to grow our church? Nothing about my character, nothing about my theology, nothing about any of the things that are important. The main thing was pragmatism. You're going to come and you're going to grow our church. What program are you going to introduce, Pastor? What strategy are you going to come in and implement? Church growth was the highest priority. Not necessarily the pastor's character, his theology. It was, our church is dying and we want somebody to come in and grow it. I used to say this when I was a youth pastor. I can grow a youth group. Give me a, an unlimited budget, pizza and movies and fun. Pastor Dustin, you know this. You'll have 100 kids show up. I'll be there. You were there at one time. <laughs> but that's not feeding the flock. So Jotham stands up and preaches this parable, this little riddle, this, this little analogy to Israel and says, okay, Israel, you're choosing a bramble. You're accepting bad leadership. You're making this guy king. It's going to go bad for you. There's going to be fire and destruction. Okay, part three. God judges the wicked king. Again, I'm not going to read all of this. We'll just read a few verses here. So let's, let's look at verse 22. So Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, ruled over them as king. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and the blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. 
And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along the way. And it was told to Abimelech, and Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Okay. We continue to read about just the destruction of Abimelech's leadership. He rules over them for three years. He's a wicked king. But then there's a new guy in town. This guy named Gaal, the son of Ebed. And he emerges as a, um, a drunken leader who's going to quote-unquote save Israel from Abimelech. And the word Gaal means to hate or to loathe. And so he's going to overthrow Abimelech because the people kind of like, we've, we've been with this guy for three years, it's not going well. Gaal moves into town, I'll overtake Abimelech. Well, Abimelech's right-hand man, Zebul, hears about this. And word gets back to the king. So the rest of the chapter is basically an ambush. Abimelech and his men, they go, they hide out at night. They wait for Gaul's men to come out. When Gaul's men come out, there's this war. And then they have to flee from the town of Shechem. And then so Abimelech goes into the town of Shechem. He kills the people of Shechem. He burns the city down to ashes. And then he throws salt on it. And then the leaders of the town flee to a tower And then Abimelech gets firewood and goes and burns down the tower, killing a thousand men and women. That's the rest of the chapter. Very exciting stuff. So let's go down to verse 48. Let's move down to verse 48. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder And he said to the men who were with him, What have you seen me do? Hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So there he is burning down this tower of a thousand people. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city And all the men and women and all the leaders of that city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they were up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. Okay. So, women, if you're ever running up into a tower, make sure you take your millstone with you. Because your husband will be like, what's this millstone for, honey? Just you watch. (laughs) You never know. So Abimelech's trying to burn down this tower. And this unknown lady, again, these ladies that do these violent things in the book of Judges, she throws this big boulder on top of Abimelech. And Abimelech says, I don't want to die by the hands of a woman, so please kill me before I die. So his armor bearer kills him. And here he is, this supposedly great king dies in infamy, embarrassed with this random accident where this lady throws a millstone out on him and kills him. Then we have the final word, a final postscript in verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech 
which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. It happened, the direct prophecy. They ended up killing each other. Destruction. Shechem is pretty much laid to waste. Abimelech is killed. And God is judging their sin by causing them to fight against each other. God basically says, if you want this wicked leader, if you want chaos, go for it. Be chaotic and see how it ends up for you. It ends up poorly. And so here's the bottom line of Judges chapter 9. When God's people forget who God is, and they're willing to accept unqualified leadership, God will discipline them. And God will judge the leader, especially. Now, what's the application for us today? You may say to yourself, well, this is interesting. We don't have Abimelech as our king, and we don't run up into towers, and we're not going to be burned and throwing millstones on people's heads. What does this have to do with us? Well, I want us to go to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament and see what God says through Paul and look at the correlated truths to what we just saw here in Judges. So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're talking about bad leadership. And we're talking about people destroying one another. God's people. And so what does God have to say about leadership? So 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 17. And I know we're kind of coming into the middle of 1 Corinthians without a lot of context, but Paul is addressing divisions in this church, and he's addressing especially how we treat the leaders of the church and how the leaders should be building the church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but it's only through the fire. Do you not know that you guys, I'm giving you the Greek there, or if you're from the south, y'all, do you not know that you guys are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you guys? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you guys are that temple. I just want to look at a few things in this passage of scripture that apply to us as a church. First, pastors 
are merely servants, not celebrities who deserve blind allegiance. There's a lot of celebrity pastors out there that want you to blindly follow them because they are the pastor. And Paul here says in verse 5, we are merely servants. We're servants. We've not gained our position through manipulation. We've not gained our position through any type of maneuvering, but God has assigned us to be pastors. And there's some things that we should be doing in our ministry. And basically, he says to pastors, and again, this is talking about spiritual leaders here in the context, we plant and we water, but only God gives the growth. I can't grow this church. You can't grow this church. But we can plant and we can water. Only God gives the increase. Notice what it says there. Some of you are following Apollos. Man, he was a cool guy. He was a great preacher. Some of you are following Paul. Listen, these guys are just servants. I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So let's ask some questions about growth. Again, these are rhetorical questions for you to start thinking about this morning. How should you in this church family be planting and watering biblically? And should we be obsessed with numbers and attendance? Who causes the growth? Is it Pastor Sean's abilities? Is it Pastor Dustin? Is it the elders? Is it our programs? No, we trust in the sovereignty of God to produce His results and His fruit in the way He sees fit. We don't force things. We don't manufacture success because Paul says, you church, there in verse 7, we're God's field. God's field. What's the field analogy? The field analogy is that we're all working together to plant and to water, but only God's going to bring the increase. And some of you have different parts to play in this planting and in this watering. There's no, there should be no competition among leaders. We shouldn't be trying to elevate ourselves. Um, we plant, we water by different things. We, we plant the gospel. We, we water through prayer and through doing ministry and through preaching and through evangelism and through ministry and through all the things that we do as a church. And we do these things. We plant and we water and we're faithful, but only God's going to bring the increase. Only God's going to bring the spiritual results. And then he also says there, you're God's building. Not just God's field, but you're God's building. So here's the second thing that we see from here. God truly cares about his church and holds leaders accountable for how they, quote-unquote, build it. The church is God's building. And Paul was the builder. Paul was the one that planted the church in Corinth. You know, we're used to houses going up and apartment complexes going up really fast, aren't we? You've been to the Front Range recently? It's like every time you go there, like new housing, new, new stuff growing up. Not so much out here in Sterling. But back then, it took a long time to build stuff. In Paul's day, a temple would take sometimes a few decades to build. So someone would lay the foundation on this big building, 
And then others would come over various stages and complete the rest of the building project. And, and maybe they didn't even get done. They would, they would either die before it got done. So Paul says, listen, I laid the original foundation. The foundation is laid. Paul came. He said, I planted this church. I had to move along. Somebody else is now building upon what I built. But what's the only foundation of a church? What's the only foundation of a church? What does he say? The foundation is Jesus Christ. So the first analogy is of a field. How are we planting and watering? The second is of a building. How are we building upon the foundation of Jesus? How are you sowing into your ministry? And what are you building on your ministry? And the focus here is on the accountability of us as leaders. This verse has been misunderstood to talk. Some people have taken this to mean it's talking about purgatory. Others are talking about how you may be saved, but somehow you're going to get like barely get into heaven by this, you know, the skin of your teeth. This is, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Christian pastors and leaders, how we build on the foundation of Christ in the local church. There's two types of materials that you can build. The, the kind that's going to withstand. The kind that's going to survive. Paul says gold, silver, precious stones. That's going to survive. There's the kind that's not going to withstand fire. Wood, hay, and straw. And what Paul's saying is on that final day, the quality of the work of the leaders of the church will be examined. So it's talking about me. And Pastor Dustin and the elders, how do we build on the foundation of Christ in this church? Are we building with shoddy materials that aren't going to last? Are we building with things that are going to outlast us into eternity? You know, it's very interesting. You may think that we're building on, on really good stuff. And you can be fooled by a lot of things in church life. I've been, I've been around this business a long time. People can be happy. People can be coming. You, you know, you got those three things, building bucks and budgets and seats and filled and, and everything's great and, and people are happy and, and people are coming. And you can have all of the semblance of things going great in a church and yet people could be going to hell and people not growing in Christ but it sure looks good on the outside. I've told you this story before. These pastors from China came over to America, and these pastors in America took them on a tour, took them to all the mega churches, all the churches, Six Flags Over Jesus churches, all the big mega churches, all the radio ministries, everything. We're really proud of all that American technology and theology and church life and they got to the end of the tour where the Chinese pastors were about ready to go back and these American pastors, oh, what, what do you think of American Christianity? And the Chinese pastors were humble. They said this, it's amazing what you guys can do without the Holy Spirit. You can do a lot of things in a church without the power of the Spirit. So what are the two most important things you can do as a church member? Pray for God's Spirit to be at work in the life of the church and pray, secondly, for your leaders to preach the gospel faithfully so as to build upon that foundation. 
Because at the end of the day, who are we trying to impress? Some churches try to impress the world. You know this pastor is not trying to impress the world. If that were true, I wouldn't be up here preaching the way I preach. So we serve and plant and water and teach and pray and do all this stuff knowing that in God's timing, He's going to get the glory by growing His church. So, we're merely servants. We're accountable as leaders how we quote-unquote build the church. Only God can cause the growth in a church, and God's going to judge our workmanship to see how we built. So that means there's a high accountability. But I do want to show you something in verse 16. There is a sense in which you individually as a Christian are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying corporately, as a, as a body, do you not know that you, and you may have a little footnote down there that says the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. My, my ESV says that. Now, you look at the original language and it does say you plural. Do you know that y'all are God's temple? We corporately, as the people of God, are His dwelling place. The temple was very important. It's, it's where God dwells. We are God's temple. We're God's dwelling place. How does God feel about his dwelling place? Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's a strong warning. If you mess with God's church, God may mess with you. That's what he's saying. Abimelech, you want to destroy God's people? I may destroy you. So what are some ways that someone can come in and destroy God's church? Well, there's heresy, there's false teaching, there's shallow man-centered teachings, gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, factions, building your church on personalities. The church is the dwelling place of God. And there's a severe warning here for anybody that would come in and try to destroy God's church. So this is a sharp warning. This is why the unity of the church, the theology of the church, the, the doctrinal purity of the church is so important. Because if somebody comes in and tries to mess with that, God says, listen, there's a possibility that it may not go well for you. Now, I want to connect the dots between Judges chapter 9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want us to think about Gideon. Okay, so for the past six chapters, Judges chapter 6 through 8, where was the pressure? The pressure was from outside. The Midianites came against Gideon from the outside. It was outside pressure. In chapter 9, where does the pressure come? From inside. It comes inside through false teaching and through idolatry and through bad leadership. So here's the point. Sometimes... Attacks can come from outside the church, and sometimes attacks can come from within the church. And my question to you is, which one's easier to perceive? I think it's easier to see the attacks coming from outside the church, because we know that the culture hates us. We know the culture's against us. It's easy to see the culture coming out against us, because we're marginalized as a church. It's easy to see the outside pressure. What's harder to see is that inside pressure those factions, that false teaching. Because here's the thing. 
sometimes, frankly, we don't expect that there will be friction in the church. Oh, there's never going to be disunity in the church. There would never be false teaching in the church. There'd never be backbiting in the church. I mean, Christians are these awesome people that never do anything wrong, right? Nothing bad would ever happen in a church. Sadly, it can, and it does far too often. So we need to be vigilant to protect the unity of the church. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Hold fast to sound doctrine. Hold spiritual leaders accountable. Remember, you get what you ask for when you accept bad leadership. I will say this until I die. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's not me. It's not the elders. It's not Pastor Dustin. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's our leader and he's a leader that will never let us down. So as we take the Lord's Supper today, I want us just to be thankful that Jesus is sovereign over this church. And I want to do something this morning that we haven't maybe done in a long time. I want to praise Jesus for the unity in this church. This church has been protected from heresy, disunity, and factions. Now let me just say that this is not a perfect church. So if you're looking for a perfect church, you came to the wrong place. Spurgeon said, if I found a perfect church, it would not be perfect once I became a member of it because then once I became a member of it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. This church has a lot of problems. But God has been gracious to us for many years. And I think it's appropriate to celebrate that with humility because when God blesses a church with unity and with fellowship and vitality it's never a cause to boast but it's a cause for us to humbly get on our knees and give all the glory to God because here's a news flash he's under no obligation to bless us and the only reason he does is because of its sovereign grace alone. So I want us to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning with humility and thankfulness that God has created a unique situation in Emmanuel Baptist Church where, where there is unity. Again, we're not perfect, but there is unity. There is vitality. There is doctrinal purity. There is health. And it's not because we're all that. It's because Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we worship Him alone. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want us to be thankful. I want us to be joyful. I want us to be humble. I want us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The only way we're going to have any success, and I use that word success as in gospel success, you plant, you water, you pray, you give, you teach, you share, you minister, you do the ministry, but at the end of the day, God causes to grow. Only God can do what God can do. So let's stay in our lane and do what we can do, and God will do what God will do, and at the end of the day, only God gets the glory.
So let's go to him in prayer this morning and let's prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Be with humility and joy. And I do want to publicly praise you, Father, for protecting the unity of this, this flock, Lord. Not that we are perfect or not that we don't have any issues or problems, we do. But Father, in your grace, you've seen fit to give us extended periods of blessing. You've blessed us financially. You've blessed us relationally. You've blessed us with wonderful elders. Lord, you've blessed us with wonderful deacons. You've blessed us with wonderful leaders. Father, you've done a great work of taking care of this flock. And we don't want to take that for granted. We always want to be humble. We want to be thankful. We want to be dependent. Because, Lord, we know that as the culture gets crazier and crazier, there's going to come pressure on us from all sides to compromise, to not stand on your truth, to bend the knee to the secular culture. And Lord, we're going to need strength upon strength and grace upon grace for that day that's coming soon. So Lord, we need to be unified relationally and unified theologically. And Lord, I think you've, you've blessed us with that, and I'm so thankful for that. I ask that you would, in your grace, continue that. So Lord Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. You're the senior pastor. You're the leader. You're the shepherd. You're the one we look to. You're the one that never lets us down. Every human will let us down, but Jesus, you'll never let us down because you are our sovereign king. So Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with humility to take the, the supper with great joy because you are king. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just